0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Don Moniz, author of the short story collection, Milk, Blood, Heat.
1: Isn't that what collections do? You know, they take this one obsession or this one question and kind of turn it at different angles and explore it that way. So it's like a three-dimensional exploration instead of like, you know, um, a two-dimensional one.
0: We'll be back with Don Teal Moniz in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, This show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January, embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot com firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Danteel Moniz, author of the short story collection Milk, Blood, Heat, which is an Indie Next pick, an Amazon Best Book of the Month selection, and a Roxanne Gay Audacious Book Club pick. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Tin House, One Story, and American Short Fiction, among others. She lives in Northeast Florida and teaches creative writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Milk, Blood, Heat is set among the cities and suburbs of Florida— and delves into the ordinary worlds of young girls and women to reveal the extraordinary moments of violence, reckoning, and awakening. Through these stories, we see characters lose their lives, gain their souls, grieve endlessly, confront race, and face death. Family ties are stretched and tested, transformation happens in prosaic moments, and many questions remain unanswered. We began the discussion with Dontiel Moniz sharing what was haunting her when she went to the page.
1: I had written a few of these stories, maybe like four or five, before I realized that they were a collection. And I say this all the time, but it's just, that's just the way that it is. It's often really hard to know what you're doing while you're doing it. It's when you, you know, step back later where you're like, oh, okay, I can see these things are connected. But I didn't know that I was writing a story collection. I just thought you were writing the same story over and over, and it's just different characters' names. But then I kind of Had to step back from that thought and be like, well, isn't that what collections do? You know, they take this one obsession or this one question and kind of turn it at different angles and explore it that way. So it's like a three-dimensional exploration instead of like, you know, um, a two-dimensional one. But I think, so there's, there's two answers to that question, which is once I realized it was a collection, I think the question I kept coming back to was, Am I a good person? That's something that I come back to over and over in my life. And if you're being really real, the real question is, am I a bad person? Because, you know, we, we generally tend to like think more negatively towards ourselves in a lot of ways. And so then I had to think about, well, what does good mean? What does bad mean? Is it situational? Who gets to define it? And so those are, those are the questions that I think run through every single one of the stories. But then after I had finished all of the stories and I had them all together and I was like, okay, this is a collection. Then I realized that there was this other question that I hadn't realized that I was working towards or working around, which was, should I be a mother? And I think even if a story isn't dealing with motherhood or daughterhood directly, it's kind of omnipresent in all of the stories in some way or shape or form. So that was like the secret thing I didn't know that I was writing around.
0: I have 10 pages of notes. At the end, after I wrote notes on all of them, I wrote down milk, blood and heat just in a row like they are on your book. And I wrote next to milk, teens. I wrote next to blood, violence. And I wrote next to heat, tension. And then I went back up and I wrote food, connection and life. And so does that make any sense to you?
1: Food connection life is basically, yeah, that's it. Um, It's, you know, milk that nourishes our bodies. That's when you're a baby, that's what you drink. All babies, uh, most babies will say that. Um, I don't know what insects drink (laughs) with their babies, but, um, you know, blood, blood of the body and then heat, which, yes, heat of Florida, but also anything living has heat or needs it to live. Right. Um, So, yeah, I think that's spot on.
0: Milk Blood Heat, which is the title story. I'm wondering, um, first, like, where did this story come in your writing all these stories? Like, was this the first one you wrote? Was it in the middle?
1: No, it wasn't the first one. It would have been so sometime after I got to my MFA um in Wisconsin, I didn't write the whole first semester because I was just dealing struggling so hard with imposter syndrome that I was like, Oh God, they're gonna find out that I don't belong here and they're gonna send me back. But I, at some point in the, you know, I had this idea for this story. I think I was watching something on Netflix and I don't remember what it was, but I oftentimes will get like a seat of a story while I'm watching movies or, you know, stuff or TV shows or something. And all I wrote, cause I, what I do is, um, I collect images and ideas and things in my notes folder on my phone. And then at some point my brain is making these connections by itself and then I realized like, oh, these things are connected. So I move them in a folder together and then that's how they become a story. So the first note that I have for Milk Blood Heat is just morbid girls. That's the first note. That's it. No other explanation. So I'm, I'm assuming whatever I was watching was like in somehow kind of melancholy and it affected me where I was just like, oh, you know what? Girls are often not, especially when they're that young, right? And especially like a decade ago or, you know, whatever, when I was growing up, like girls were like light and frivolous and fluffy. And I think that, you know, the seriousness or like the morbidity, morbidity of girlhood is something that gets overlooked a lot. Like, just think about like having a period or like having, having grownups tell you from a really young age, like you have to be careful of your surroundings because some, some man could snatch you up and kill you. Like, I just thought wow, there's something there. And I think I was kind of like, I don't know, I always had questions about death and why we are the way we are, even when I was like younger. So I don't know. I think there's just something in that that captured me. And then the story kind of came out of that.
0: Do you think imposter syndrome, like I'm thinking about like locations where writers can feel that because when you, when you have it, if you're just in your home, like writing, you might feel that, but it it doesn't seem as intense as when you're in community, like at school, I suspect it might be more common in women, but I, I have no data. What do you, what do you think about that? And how did you kind of overcome that?
1: I think that's a hundred percent. You got something there with as far as like it's external, right? It feels internal, It feels like it's something inside of you, but really it's like our fear of other people's perception of us or what we do and how and somehow we're looking for validation externally. That's what I think it is, because I definitely have been a writer since very young and I used to have no problem just sitting down with a story and like writing like I was just writing all of the time just for fun. And then I think there's a way in which once you're like, oh, I want to try to publish that, there's already this audience in that and then it becomes like this more pressurized situation so I think for me it definitely had to do with oh I'm I'm taking this seriously but will other people take me seriously what if I find out that I'm not any good at this or you know but that's like I said external so I basically had to let myself feel that and go through that the first semester and then at some point I was like well Writing is the way that you understand everything. You got to do it. I mean, you came here, you sacrificed all of this to come, you know, because it's not, even if, it, if it's a fully funded MFA program, it's not without sacrifice, right? Especially like if you're in a relationship and both of you can't move, which was the case for me and my husband, um, it's still really expensive to be a graduate student and to move across the country and all these things. So I just had to tell myself, well, this is what you asked for. This is what you wanted. So you got to do it. And, you know, and then I was able to kind of break myself out of it that way.
0: And one other thing you said before we get into the story was that you use the notes on your phone and you take images. And it makes me think about how technology has aided writing. I mean, I don't know how old you are, and maybe you grew up from a pretty young age always having a phone, but a lot of writers didn't. And how does that intersect with with what you write?
1: I didn't get my first cell phone until I was 15 and it was this little silver flip phone and it was like so cute and I loved it. But, um, I always kind of wrote on a computer. Like my mom had gotten me this like clunky little desktop and I, I mean, I I wrote stories by hand just because like that was always available paper and pen. But, um, I always wrote stories on a computer. So like when people are like, Oh, you know, write longhand first. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, that's good advice for some people. I think there is something about changing how you're writing. But like, for me, it's just always been natural to type. But as far as like the notes app on the phone, that's been instrumental because you know, when an idea comes to you, you will not remember it. You have to write it down. Like some people are like, Oh, I'll remember, I'll remember it, but you really won't. And so I'm a person who I would never have a pencil and notepad on me. I just never would. So like having my phone, I always have that. And so I can just always like take the notes app. And then, you know, I have them sent to the cloud too. So like, just in case anything happens, I won't lose those notes. And so I've been doing that since about, I think the oldest note in my phone is like from 2012 and some of that stuff, you know, I've used and turned into stories and some is still waiting for the time where it's, you know, to find the right story to be a seed for. So, but yeah.
0: Do you think it would be harder for you now because that's how you do it? And it's so imagistic for you that if you didn't have your phone for a year that writing stories would be harder or different stories would come out because of that?
1: I mean, probably just because, like I said, I'm like, I wish I was the writer who was just like, look at me, I'm prepared to like, you know, do that. But like thoughts come to me so spontaneously or like just random, like I like my husband, it's it's fine now, like he's used to it now, but like in the beginning when I first started being like, Okay, I'm taking this seriously, I'm taking notes, we'd be watching something or having a conversation. And I just grab my phone and start typing. I'm like, shh, 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 don't talk to me. I need to I need to do this. And he'd be like, What are you doing? But he, now he knows it's like, okay, she's got an idea. So he'll just like <laughs> he'll just very quietly and patiently like pause whatever we're doing and just like wait for me and be like, Okay, you ready? But yeah, I think it would be different. I just think I don't know, I think so much more would get away from me. Yeah. I'd like to say I'd have an infallible brain, but I, I just know I don't.
0: So Milk, Blood, Heat is the opening story, and the structure of it is it's it's Roman numeraled. It's still like yeah. paragraphs and narratives, but it's Roman numeraled. You have two best friends. They're 13. Kira is white and Ava is black. And Kira came up to Ava. In the very beginning, it says she feels like she's drowning. And somehow that formed a bond with them. So Kira has this sort of malaise and depression. And she comes from a more free family where her parents believe in freedom of expression. And Ava's mom is much more wary. She's more wary of, of Kira. She's just a different, has a different sort of way of parenting and in the very beginning, they become blood sisters. Basically, they, they drop their blood into a bowl of milk and then they drink it. So their kind of DNA is mingled. So later in, in the story, there's there's a party and Kira's at sort of at a precipice in her life where there's some danger present. And it sort of shifts things for Ava and her mother. And at the very end, Ava gets her period and she sinks underwater in in the tub and her mom finds her and she kind of realizes that her mom does understand her. So there's sort of linkages throughout the story between like blood and understanding and how deep those ties are and how, how connections are made and how misunderstandings can be cleared and also a lot of grief.
1: I think the grief is important to note because like that's one of the things I'm trying to explore in the collection is like, how does grief manifest? And like, what are the ways in which everyone around us is always telling us what's appropriate grief and what's not? Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do. Because I, I also thought that grief was one of the overriding principles in so many of these stories that tied it together. So when you were saying it in the beginning that you were exploring stories that are all the same, I thought grief was probably one of them in, in the structure of milk, blood, heat, you have in the middle, you put in a Q and a style that's different. It's more compressed and poetic. So I just wanted to ask you about shifting that style, but also the overall story, sort of the impetus and why you decided it to structure it this way.
1: Yeah. So like i was saying i had kind of frozen when i got to my mfa like all of a sudden i just had so much anxiety about whether or not other people would think i belonged that i couldn't write um and so i had the idea of this story but i was stuck and so when i finally was able to kind of return to the page i was trying to figure out how to write the story like usually when i come to a story i know the end I, I know where I want to start. Sometimes the cha- that changes. The ends are pretty concrete for me. The ends are like, I already pretty much know where I want to, you know, get off the train, so to speak. But I was having a trouble figuring out, like, just how to make it all work and how to get the energy started. And then I had read A Visit from the Goon Squad shortly before I started writing the story. And there's the story Safari that she has in there. And it's these um, Roman numeral sections just like this. And I was like, you know what, what if I borrow that because I really loved that story. I was like, if I borrow that, would that help me make this story work? And it turns out that it did. So that's, I chose that form just because I was like, I need something to help me get going. And that was it. So thanks for (laughs) that, Jennifer Egan. But, um, yeah, I, I, was interested in just exploring, especially these two mothers, right? I think there's a way in which if you are marginalized in any way, but especially if you're Black growing up in this country, um, there's a way in which you have to kind of have this hardened shell to kind of protect you from what's around you that's already trying to destroy you. And I think the difference between Kira's mom and Ava's mother is not that one of them understands one of them more than the other or that one of them loves the other one more. It's that... Ava's mother has to be a different mother than Kira's mother, just by nature of being Black growing up in this country. And she understands that there are hard things about this life that her daughter's going to experience. And it's kind of like, yeah, we don't have the luxury of being frivolous about the way we carry ourselves in this world. And I think I was really interested in that divide between the friends and how, you know, oftentimes love can be conflated as harm and vice versa. And so, you know, for Ava, it's like, My mother doesn't understand me. She doesn't care that I want to be free. Whereas to her mother, it's I'm trying to protect you. And this is the way that I know how to do that.
0: There's a line there that that the narrator says. Ava's mom is saying to her, why are you so messy every time you come home from Kira's? Why are your sneakers dirty? You know, why can't they watch you and keep you cleaner? And Ava says nothing because words never mean what she wants them to And that was one of my favorite lines in the story because it's so much about, in some ways, it's actually like pregnancy, what you have inside, but it can't really gestate in the right way. It's about culture and the fears we have of being wrong. I wanted to ask you if you had anything to say about that line.
1: Yeah, I think like, especially... For me, because how I understand what I'm thinking and my own intelligence is through writing, I often, I think my struggle with feeling like I'm not as smart as people is less to do with my actual intelligence and more to do with the fact that I'm more comfortable and I think better at, at articulating what I'm trying to say or what I feel or what I think through writing versus verbally. So I always have the fear that I'm not going to be able to explain to someone what I think and feel in a way that will translate for them, that will make sense to them, and that, and thus I'm always like, well, people aren't going to get me. Do you know what I mean? And so I think, I think that's where that line is. It's like you know how you feel, or like you, you can feel. That's like an intelligence. Emotions are a kind of intelligence, but it's so hard sometimes to translate that into language, into the language that will um, that somebody else can receive. So I think. For me I think that's a lot of what's happening in our world with people it's communication and miscommunication understanding and misunderstanding and like what happens in the space between those things in a relationship.
0: And then there was that one section where in section 4 you change the structure just the structure is still the same but you kind of change the way you present the content cuz it's pretty much a traditional narrative and then in question 4 in section four, it, you change it to a Q&A. And basically, yeah. you're asking why was this danger present? And then you answer it. What? How did you alight upon that?
1: So for that section, I, I don't even know how, it, I don't even remember like why I was like, oh, we're going to do it this way. But I thought, you know we have so many questions about why people are the way they are we always want to know well how did this happen especially when something tragic happens like it's like i want to understand i want to understand and the thing is is that most of the time you don't get those answers there's more questions than there are answers and i thought it would be really interesting to explore the first half of that only in questions like there's there's only questions in the first part of that paragraph and sometimes questions become answers. Right. So the way it's set up is it's Kira's parents. Right. And then what's in parentheses is, um, Ava's mom and like the response to that. And sometimes, and you know, and there's that one that's like just dot, dot, dot. And it's like that silence, but sometimes silence is also an answer or, you know, the refusal to answer or something. And sometimes the refusal to answer something is an answer. And so I just thought, yeah, there's so many questions few answers. But then like the one answer that you can have, it's not going to give you closure. It's not going to make you feel any better. And so like I thought it made sense that Ava would have this answer but not want to share it because she's like it's only going to hurt you.
0: Which brings you, you know, back to that that question of grief which as we said carries over to many of these stories and the next story feast is about a woman who had a miscarriage and she has a stepdaughter who's healthy and six years old and she can't stop seeing pieces of her baby everywhere and it's really hard for her to connect with Nyla, her stepdaughter, because she's so so depressed. And I think the question that really, that story asks is like, how long can you grieve? And is it okay for grief? to eat you alive? And what if grief is unending?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the question about how long are you allowed to grieve is one that I really was getting at. And especially if you think about this situation, right? I feel like I hear so few stories about women who have experienced miscarriages in this way. It's kind of like, you know, there's a line where the husband says like, And the doctor too is like, oh, this is common. This happens. It happens. It's common. And it's like, okay, so it's common. That's fine. I understand. But like, what does that mean that I'm not allowed to grieve this thing? And I think for Raina in that story, I think a part of her grief is exasperated by the fact that everyone around her is telling her, hey, it's not that big of a deal. It happens. It's okay. And she's like, well, I I, I still feel this and, and you're invalidating what I'm feeling. And so I think in that way, it was harder for her to let go of the grief of having lost this baby, even though everyone was like, it happens. Everyone goes, you know, like many people go through this. She's like, well, I, that's fine. I, this is, but it's happening to me right now. And I, and I'm, I'm trying to exist in that space and you're, and you're not letting me exist in that space. And so now it's become this thing, right? It, it, it it grows in size. And I think, I think with grief in particular, especially in this society, it's like, okay, you're allowed to grieve, but only in these ways that are recognizable. And you can grieve for this amount, but if you grieve longer than that, then now something's wrong with you. And now we have to examine you and like, why why aren't you like getting over this? And I think grief is so individual and it's not something that's like, oh, it happens and then it's over, right? Grief is a thing that can come back to you in any form. And um, I think a lot of people who have experienced grief, they're like, yeah, I mean, you learn to live beside it. And it's not always this intense, very visceral thing, but sometimes it's just kind of like a whisper, something that you live with and a a way of remembering whatever it is that you lost, right?
0: So when you're talking about these big ideas of grief, you know, through the lens of this very particular and very real story for this woman, I'm curious about how you come to your endings because I've, reading this book, a lot of your endings seem to tie things up in a way that's either metaphorical or just so resonant and that doesn't always happen and I I would love to talk about a particular ending if you feel yeah. okay about what sure. it might reveal about the story. Probably one of my favorite endings was in the story Outside the Raft.
1: Yeah. So based on my f- too. Basically,
0: this story is about two cousins who are living with their grandmother under different circumstances. One, basically, her her parents robbed a pawn shop and killed a man, and the other, her parents are divorced, and she spends a lot of time with the grandmother. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So her parents had never been married. I mean, like, so that's normal for her. is that that's how I imagined it, and um. And she likes to go hang out with her grandmother because she and her cousin are very close. So, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So Tweet is 10 years old and she's the one whose parents robbed the pawn shop. And Shayla's parents are separ- aren't are together. And she has always, her mother's friends have always said to Shayla that there's a darkness in her. And her their grandmother believed very strongly in God. And Shayla questioned it and Tweet believed. And that was something underlying the whole story was this idea of, of faith. And they went with their aunt and uncle out on a raft to, to the ocean. And what happened is they got out a little bit far and it got really choppy and they fell out and Shayla almost drowned tweet to save herself. And so then through the ending, that lost it's sort of tied up in their in their belief in God or lack of belief in God. And Shayla's life went on to be okay, but Tweet sort of passed on that loss to her kids and understood that kind of you need the darkness and the light. And what you do yeah. at the end is you, you jump ahead in time and then you go back to that day. So if you want to read any part of it, or if I describe that wrong or you want to correct me, please do. Yeah.
1: I'll just say that um so as far as when they're in the raft it's actually like super smooth right because that's the thing about being out on the ocean is that it it sometimes feels as if you're not moving if you're on the surface because it's undercurrents right so they get to a point where they they get past the waves and um and then they get bored because children are easily like okay I want to move on from that so they voluntarily jump off of this raft it doesn't seem that far to to go back to shore so like oh we'll just swim back and then they they find out when they all jump out that's much further than they thought. Um, so, but yeah, I can read just like the last paragraph of that, actually. Um, of that story, I, like, like you, like it's one of my favorite endings that I wrote. On shore, Tweet knelt on hands and knees as if praying to our grandmother's Jehovah, gulping air and choking on it. I sat beside her, silent, drawing circles in the sand. I didn't know how to explain myself. How I had become full of terror and light, or that I had been both the drowning and the wave. How suddenly I knew that all things must die. I didn't know how to apologize for wanting to save my own life. I wrapped my arms around her like a mother might, pressed my lips into her neck. Her body relaxed into mine and the shivering stalled. I heard her sigh. I love you, I said. And I willed the words to vibrate at a higher frequency to jounce through her solid-seeming skin and settle in her bloodstream as with the voice of God.
0: So can you talk a little bit more about how you got to that point and and right before you jump ahead in time and show a little glimpse of their life? And I think that's really important to how you go back.
1: Basically, and again, endings usually come to me. So when I actually, this is the first story that I ever wrote for this collection, and I wrote it in undergrad in 2012 in a workshop. And obviously it was, it did not exist in this way in 2012, but, um, you know, all of the seeds are kind of the same. And so when I was revising it, I kind of obviously just like kind of broke the story open. Um, but I knew that it ended with these two cousins and like this thing, they can't speak about this thing that happened. Right. Cause like, how do you, how do you do that? How do you say I, I, I really apologize for almost drowning you in, in the moment I was just thinking about not dying myself. I think and especially when you're that young, there's no there's no language for it. So I knew I knew it ended on the beach, but while I was trying to figure out how the rest of the story worked, I was really interested in God, but not just like, you know, blue-eyed Jesus or whatever people usually think of, you know, Jesus and God as and all this stuff, I was thinking about what really is God? What's the nature of it? Which is, you know, there's this line when Shayla is questioning if God is real, you know, and tweets very certain, but Shayla is wondering, I wonder what her God looks like. I wonder if it looks like, you know, both her parents' faces and if they have a gun tucked in the waistband of its jeans, you know, that kind of thing. And so, I think it was really important to get back to the idea of what God was. You know, Shayla's in this moment of drowning. They all are. And she thinks, well, he, you know, if he watches everything, he can see me right now. And he is, there. I think there's a line where she says, like, not I think, I know, but it's, there's a line where she says, he was the blue blackness of the underside of waves and the salt burning in my nose. So I think it gets to the question of God is nature. You know, in a way that like God is this thing that's all around us, this living thing, it's inside of us, it's around us. And I just thought there's a certain type of fear and love in that. And so even if, you know, Shayla can't apologize for what has happened, she can say, I love you and hope that that love lives inside of her cousin.
0: I think also innate in, in that when, when Tweet passed on her loss to her kids was something that appeared in several of your stories and is, is true for many people of, of color, I think in, in this country is intergenerational trauma.
1: Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I forget to like talk about that so explicitly because I just like build it into the world because that's, you know, that's the way it's experienced in life. A lot of these things that are happening, we live in all of these different systems. We think about capitalism and white supremacy and patriarchy. Right. But like, you often are not living it in a way where you're like conscious of all of the ways in which that affects a life, but like, it's all around you, but yeah, intergenerational trauma is definitely one thing that I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about it in that story and I'm thinking about it in, um, I think necessary bodies, there's actually a line that's like talking about it. And then if you think about the story in Almanac of Bones, but yeah, it's like, what do we pass on? Um, and how does that get passed on? Like what's inherited, I think is, is the question there.
0: I think too, it's, it's probably so embedded in every situation and how the characters have language and what they say that it's like you were saying, you forget to talk about it because it's, it's like almost so woven in.
1: It's the fabric. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so a lot of your books did have, or a lot of your stories did have characters that were black and white and how important is that for you in in your stories? And does that help emphasize some of that trauma in a different way?
1: Yeah. So, so I'll say right off the bat that I don't think that Black work needs to engage with whiteness. That's not, I don't think that that's a requirement, even though it has felt that way, um, just because of how the larger publishing industry is set up. But I will say that I'm interested in that right now. And I think a part of that absolutely has to do with the fact that most of my formative relationships were with um, people who were white. And, you know, it's not until like the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years or whatever, when I'm looking back on those relationships that I had, like, you know, in elementary school and middle school and even high school, where I'm thinking like, you know, I, am sure these people actually cared about me. There was care there, but there were so many ways in which they intentionally are not othered me. And going back and looking at, you know, those moments where things were said to me or done to me that made me feel a certain way, but I didn't want to say that for fear of, you know, losing the relationship, or I didn't even know how to articulate it at that time. So I think it's a really good example of just like, Even like, okay, so if you take um, the married couple that's in Necessary Bodies, right? That's an interracial relationship. They actually have a really stable marriage. They have a loving marriage. And you can feel that, but there's still things in which, you know, she's kind of having to remind her husband, like, hey, you've got these sets of privileges, and that's just the way that it is. I'm also, my husband is white, and I feel like, you know, we've had a long journey together of him having to discover the world as, you know— as it is for someone who's not at the top of the hierarchy. Right. And so, you know, it's just a situation where it's like, yes, we have this love and that transcends a lot of things, but Hey, this is the reality. The reality is I move through the world differently than you do. And I think, yeah, that was definitely something I was interested in kind of exploring on the page.
0: I think too, in that story, Necessary Bodies, one of the things it points out, which is very true in life is that in some ways it's easier to be positive and honest with an acquaintance that there, there was a character in there that she could be the the main character could be Billy could be more honest with about what was going on in her life and how she was feeling because it's so interesting how vulnerability is when it's with an intimate partner, it's so much scarier. And so you hold back, but with an acquaintance, you can tell everything.
1: Yeah. And I think that's something also to look at when you're looking at the types of relationships that are happening in those settings in the bar in those stories. So I'm thinking about um, the loss of heaven and snow, right? So it's like those are transactional relationships. But at the same time, people will tell you so much more about themselves. And they probably tell other people they're even closer with because it's like, I don't know. There's almost like this wall between you and that person. So it just is easier to be like, yeah, I'm going to tell you about, you know, my father's death or I'm going to, you know, I don't know. I was a bartender and a server for, that's pretty much all I did before I went to my MFA. So I never had what people might call a real job, which is a form of elitism, by the way, a judgment of like how people keep themselves alive. But, um, people would tell me the wildest things. Like, honestly, I have so many notes and stories and seeds, like just waiting to happen just from the amount of information people would reveal to me, like really intimate things. But like, it's like, I don't know if it was like, Oh, I'll never see this person again. Or I only see this person in this context. So some, some of my personhood was kind of like constrained in a way that made him, made it safe for them to talk about things. I don't know. But yeah, I think there is something there between intimacy and like, like how well you know a person.
0: So you mentioned earlier the patriarchy, which comes through in a few of these stories, but one of the ones that it stood out the most was tongues for me. Yeah. And so this story is about a young girl who's so self-possessed. She has so much spunk and so much insight and her name is Zay. And she has a teacher at school who, has a word of the day calendar. So language is a big part of this. And at her, at the new life, first Baptist church, they speak in tongues and she has this first understanding of the patriarchy and that the pastor wants her to want something else from, from all femaleness and and what they should be. And she's not down with that. And he's saying we need good God fearing girls and she's just more independent and she's judged by her family, by her brother, by people at school who, cause her brother says that she's possessed and, yeah. and, um, she, she really fights back. And to me, that story is about the power of words.
1: Yeah. Language is really, um, important on the surface level, right? Cause it starts with that. We get the entry to the word of the day calendar and how that what that means in Zay's life and how she's understanding what a word is and what's underneath what that word is. And I think that's one of the things that I was mostly exploring is this idea of double speak, right? Like you're saying one thing, but there's something underneath that. And that's the true intention. You know, she recognizes that with her parents, she recognizes that with um, her pastor, right? She recognizes that with the Bible. It's like, you know, these are ways in which, you are dictating to me what I should be, but underneath that, what's driving that? And I think that's important to think about. I honestly think a lot about um, our country when I when I think about double speak and shadows underneath words people are saying. Because you know, you have this like all men are equal, like that's what our constitution is founded on. But then, if you really look at what's going on, it's like that's a lie. It's foundational. All of these inequities, all of these like. Um, systemic discrepancies is foundational. And so I think that's one way in which it's really important to understand that what people are saying and what they actually mean are sometimes very different. And I think that's what Zay is kind of going through, an awakening of understanding that there are shadows um, in this story.
0: Yeah. And also how culture can change you because she is really castigated for not believing. But when she was younger, her and her brother really believes his name is duck and when he he was younger he really looked up to her and he would come into her room at night and ask her questions and get into bed with her and then that changes and she's seen as bad and you have a light uh, a line in there that says there's nothing she can tell him that he'd understand that might bring comfort it is the nature of light to illuminate. And she can't, like so many, forget what she's seen. And so it's also about truth and, and denial of truth.
1: Yes, I think that's the other thing I started thinking about. like You know, when you have a story, right, like in the MFA or wherever, people are like, oh, you know, it's your characters making actions. But I also thought about how, well, like, inaction is also a kind of action, right? It's, it's still a choice. It's a choice. And I thought about how, like, once you have knowledge of something, you cannot forget that knowledge. You can choose to ignore it. You can choose to act against it, but you know it, which means your change, which means the responsibility you have towards whatever it is towards other people or yourself has changed. But it's like, are you going to move in the direction of that knowledge or you're going to move away from it? Um, so, yeah, I was really interested in the idea of, like, knowledge acquisition and the ways in which we don't want to know truth a lot of the time because it's hard.
0: Yeah. In your in your story, The Hearts of Our Enemies, you know, girlhood, womanhood, parenthood, motherhood, um, you have a line about three pages in where Frankie, the mother, says she tried to remember what it was like before her daughter despised her. Yeah. that's That's like teens and moms.
1: Yeah. I feel like, I mean— I don't know. I mean, maybe some people don't go through it, but I feel like I think it's pretty common to have this thing where you're like your parent is the all seeing, all knowing. You know what I mean? You want to be your parents best friend. And then you get to that point where you're like, oh, you don't know everything. You don't know everything. And I I now have different thoughts than you. I have different opinions than you. And I think that that's where the rupture starts, or at least that's where it was for me and my mom. It was around 14 where I was just like, oh, I have different feelings about the world than you do. And now that's a problem. Do you know what I mean?
0: I do. And and you said that Margot, her daughter, was at that special age where she knew both nothing and everything. And it's like she thought she knew everything, but the world knows she knows nothing. Right.
1: Yeah, and,
0: she's a child, and she has so much judgment um, towards her her mother. Her mother, their her parents' marriage, is disintegrating because the mother left the husband, and so Margot is so angry at her and blames her. But she also has some really inappropriate stuff going on in her personal life at school. And it also makes you realize how much peril there is for girls. And when they're at that in-between age, when they think they're adult and make some really crazy adult decisions, they need their mother the most. And you really set that up into a situation where they both need each other to save
1: one another. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It's like, like you said, it's the age where guidance would be critical, but that's the time where you're most pushing it away. You know what I mean? It's like, that's the part where you're like, you're trying to constrain me and you don't understand me. And I think, too, one of the things that was important for me in that story was Margot realizing that her mother it's her first time on the earth in this life, and she's doing the best she can. I think it's very easy for, and vice versa, I think it's easy for parents not to think of their children as like whole humans, but I think it's equally as easy for children not to th- feel that way about their parents. Like, I remember what age I was and where I was when I thought, oh my god, this is the first time my mom's ever been in this life. Wow. And it made it a lot easier for me to deal with you know, any kind of situation where I thought she hadn't given me what I needed. It made me it made it easier for me to forgive those moments and be like, you know, she tried. I'm glad I had that moment. I think it opened up a lot of possibility um, in the relationship between my mother and me and you know, my and my dad too, but it's just like, oh okay, you know, it's okay. They're human. It's the same thing. We're both here at the same, you know, uh, for the first time
0: and that that is a relationship where something got mended and the mom really was a good. Mother, but there's some other stories where the parents are not good. One is thicker than water. In that story, Cecilia and Lucas are our brother and sister, and their dad died, and the brother and sister road trip from Tallahassee to Santa Fe with the ashes. Cecilia doesn't want to go and she has a strained relationship with her brother because her brother had the opportunity to maybe donate an organ and didn't. And part of the reason he didn't, I think, in part was, was what he saw and, and the father molested Cecilia. And so it's this really interesting question because although she has, her life hasn't turned out great and she has really questionable feelings towards the dad, she also has anger at the brother
1: Yeah. And so just so they go from Tallahassee to um, Santa Fe is where they're going. So they they live in Florida and they're going to Santa Fe where the father grew up to go spread his ashes. And the father has been dead for a year at the point the story starts. And they haven't been talking in all this time because Cecilia has this blame for you could have saved our father. But they're also so the thing that happens between Cecilia and the father isn't – isn't dealt with directly. And the reason why I wanted it like that is because this story isn't a first person POV. So if you haven't dealt with, if you haven't been able to admit to yourself, the things that have been going on, how could like, how would that be very clear in the story? So for me, I had to kind of toe this line between revealing, like, you know, setting it up to where you can understand by the end, like what happened while also kind of giving Cecilia that, um, I don't know a way of like kind of dancing around what happened because she hasn't, and is not ready to, to deal with it yet. But yeah, I think that story was so interesting to me. So the way that came is I just had an idea about siblings and they had been estranged and I didn't know what had happened. Um, but I was like really interested in this concept of people who came from the same place who grew up together and then like, what would be the rift between them? And then I also was thinking about, um, found family versus blood family. And, like, how at some point in your life you might decide, like, yes, this is my family, this is where I come from, but it's not good for me. And, like, when do you break those ties? And I think that's what the brother, that's what Lucas ends up doing. You know, he's had a moment where he's like, you know what? My family is not ready to acknowledge these truths, and I need to be apart from that.
0: The other story of parents maybe being questionably good because they're following their own best nature but not exactly. being your traditional best parent would be an almanac of bones where yeah. sylvie's living with the grandparents and her mother is a wanderer she she travels all the time and she says at one point she comes back there's a there's a harvest moon festival for all women and it's it's really interesting and the mother says like is staying what makes a good mother domestic is Stasticity is for animals. And she also says you learn to be who you are or you die as something else. And so she's starting to see, maybe for the first time, in some ways, a confrontation with her mother coming back, her own mother's sort of sensibility of the world and what makes her tick. Can you tell me more?
1: Again, again, I, I didn't realize I was writing towards this, but it's in that question of should I have children And one of the things that I think, especially for women in our society, is that it's almost like appalling to people, the idea that you would choose not to have children if you could. Um, You know, I just know that like when I got married and I I got married pretty young, I was 22 turning 23 or was I 23 turning 24? I don't remember. Anyway, I think I was 23 turning 24, but, um, you know, almost as soon as we got married, like first when we got married and people were like, why are you pregnant? Like, is that why you're getting married? It's like, no, we just like each other. Um, but then like it, it flipped so quickly to like, when are you having kids? When are you having kids? And we had been barely married a year. And it's like, Jesus, like, I, I think I spent so much time trying to disentangle what I actually wanted from what I had been conditioned to want. Cause I think women or girls are conditioned for like motherhood from young age you know you get kitchen sets you get baby dolls to mother that kind of thing um and so i was really interested in this idea of mothers who maybe weren't meant to be mothers but you know maybe they didn't have the choices or they didn't have the safety to kind of think more clearly about whether or not motherhood was for them. I think that happens to a lot of people actually. And I, and I wonder like how different our society would be if we gave women more freedom and grace to think about ways outside of traditional motherhood to like create and bring life into the world. You know what I mean? Like, I think this is a case where yes, you'd be like, well, it's really terrible to abandon your child, but like she knew herself enough to be like this this isn't going to be right for me. This isn't going to be right for the kid. You know, my, I'm, I'll leave her with someone I know she'll be safe and protected with. And so it's like.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yeah, so I'm going to read just like like a page of um, a story called Garments by Tamima Anam. Um, I just really fell into this story and I loved it. So Garments. One day, Mala lowers her mask and says to Jasmine, my boyfriend wants to marry you. Jasmine is six shirts behind, so she doesn't look up. After the bell, Mala explains. For months now, she's been telling the girls, yeah, any day now, me and Dulal are going to the Kazi. They don't believe her. They know her boyfriend works in an air-conditioned shop. No way he was going to marry a garments girl. Now she has a scheme, and when Jesmine hears it, she thinks it's not so bad. Two days later, Mala's sweating like it's July. He wants one more, three wives. We have to find a girl. After the bell, they look down the row of sewing machines and try to choose. Mala knows all the unmarried girls, which one needs a room, which one has hungry relatives, which one borrowed money against her wage and can't work enough overtime to pay it off. They squint down the line and consider Fatima, Kaya, Kamala, but for some reason or other they reject them all. There's a new girl at the end of the row, but when Mala takes a break and limps over to the toilet, she comes back and says the girl has a milky eye. There's a new order for panties. Jasmine picks up the sample. She's never seen a panty like it before. It's thick, with double seams on the front, back, and around the buttocks. The leg is just cut off without a stitch. Mala, she says, what's this? Mala says the foreign ladies use them to hold in their fat, and they call them Thanks? Thanks? Yep, because they look so good in the mirror, they say to the panties, thanks. Jasmine and Mala pull down their mask and trade a laugh when the morning supervisor, Jamal, isn't looking. Jasmine decides it won't be so bad to share a husband. She doesn't have dreams of a love marriage, and if they have to divide the sex, that's fine with her. And if he wants something, like he wants his rice the way his mother makes it, maybe one of them will know how to do it. Walking home as she did every evening with all the other factory workers, a line two girls thick and mile long, snaking out of Tongi and all the way to Atara, she spots a new, a, a new girl. Sometimes Jasmine looks in front and behind her at the line, all the ribbons flapping and the song of sandals on the pavement, and she feels a swell in her chest. She catches up to the girl. Her name's Ruby. She's dark but pretty, small white teeth and filmy eyes. She's new and eager to make friends. I'm coming two, three hours from my village every morning, she complains. I know, Jasmine says. Finding a place to live is why I'm doing this.
0: Can you tell me why you chose that?
1: Yeah, so this is a story that I came to um, in Best American Short Stories, uh, 2016. And I thought just the opening of that, like, grabbed me. I was just thinking about, like, marriage as this institution. And like, you know, now it exists, at least in our country as like, you know, love matchups or, you know, honestly love mismatches in a lot of ways. But, you know, the fundamental purpose of it, you know, earlier was the consolidation of assets, like the, you know, to gain capital, to gain standing. And just to see like these women who are like, you know, we, we're, we will allow ourselves to be like, third wives so we can have a place to live, so we can have some kind of standing. It was just so interesting to me. And still, this story is grappling with that, but with so much humor, so much levity. I thought that it was such a deep and affecting story, but it was really funny. And I liked that as well.
0: Can you read a passage from something you wrote that maybe was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: Yeah, so I was going to read just a small section from Snow, actually. This was the story, I think one of the stories that took me longest to like make sure it was right so that the ending felt right. Um, so I'm just gonna read the part where her and her coworker that she has kind of a crush on, they go outside and they're taking a break from work. RJ sat in the usual smoking spot, around the side of the building near the enclosed dumpsters, out of sight of patron view. The cooks had drug out three old crates for chairs and a table. RJ nodded at me as I approached. I sat next to him and wrapped my arms around myself. Our breath garlanded the air. You go into Gemma's party? Are you? I asked. RJ brought out the baggie and it seemed like half the Coke was gone. He scooped some out and took a hit, thumbing his nose against the burn. I might, if you go. I have more fun when you're around, he said, then reached over to tug gently on my ear. The spot glowed with warmth and traveled through me, striking hard between my legs. My body felt made of stars. I admitted to myself right then, that what was between RJ and me was maybe not nothing. Easily, I could imagine him as a lover and what that quick pink tongue would do. The hugeness of RJ's pupils seemed to suck at me and finally I had to turn away. It's cold, I said. We should both get back in there. Here, warm up. He measured a bit of powder onto the back of his hand and held it up to me. I looked from him to his hand. There were only two more hours in the shift and the high was so brief. Who could it hurt? other than myself. Why did you choose that? So in the original versions of this story, I didn't have that like explicit moment between them where she realizes that she's kind of been lying to herself about what the nature of their relationship might be, like what's underneath her attraction to him. Um, And so I think that was one of the ways in which when people were asking me, oh, are you sure it ends there? I realized it wasn't the ending that was the issue. It was the fact that I needed that moment where it's like the reader can see her realizing, you know, what's actually happening.
0: Where do you write
1: I prefer to write in coffee shops, but obviously that's not been a thing. So I I write upstairs in my office. I have like a little loft and it looks out onto the window. Like right now it's raining and it's like the rain against the windows and everything. So I write up here.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Um, movies, TV shows. I play video games with my husband. We're really into cyberpunk right now, um, and so that's cool. And then roller skating. I've been trying to learn how to be a jam skater during the pandemic. So, but it's really hard to get away from writing. I feel like my brain's always doing it even when I'm not, but yeah, those are the ways in which I can put it kind of in the back seat.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: So that's a two-part question. I show it first to my husband, but I can't get feedback from him because he's not a writer. He'll just be like, yeah, that's great. That sounds good. But he's always the first person that I need. To. It's like I I show it to him, or really I read it out loud to him, but it's like reading it out loud to myself, but in a way that I'm bouncing it off him, so it makes sense to me. But the first person I show it to is my friend Sarah Fuchs. Um, she just is a great reader for my work, and she'll tell me like what's working, and she'll tell me when I'm not living up to myself, which I think is important for every writer to have.
0: How do you deal with rejection?
1: It's going to sound really basic, but just like, just acceptance, right? Like, no matter what level of this career you get to, rejection is forever. It will always happen, because there's just like so many spaces and like people, all these people who are applying. So, like, I usually deal with it like, I'll give myself a moment. I might like, you know, bitch to my friends and my group chat, but then like, just realizing that it's forever. It's okay. It's not personal.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I don't know if I'm allowed to say what my favorite word is. Am I allowed to? Absolutely. All right. So my favorite word would be fuck, which is only because it's such a great word. It's so versatile, right? You can use it as a a noun, a verb, an adjective. It can mean something really great or something really terrible. It can be an insult or a compliment. It's just, you can use it for all things. But if I had to be like a PG backup word, it would be burnished, but as an adjective. I just like the way that sounds. And I like the gleamingness of the word. Like it It emulates what it does.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing and for this conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: Hey, thanks so much.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Dontiel Moniz, author of the short story collection, Milk, Blood, Heat. If you liked today's show, check out my interview with Amina Gautier. We discussed her short story collection, Now We Will Be Happy, which features tales of characters working through fragility, disconnection, race, and culture. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Anna North, Gabriella Garcia, Marissa Silver, Stephen Pressfield, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.